Welcome to the Continued Learning Podcast. My name is Dr. Fawn Carson, and I'm Senior Managing Editor at OccupationalTherapy.com. Today's podcast features our host, Dr. Dennis Cleary, discussing designing inclusive play spaces with our guest, Ingrid Canix. Thanks for listening. Well, hi, everyone, and thanks for being with us. I'm really excited to be joined today by Ingrid Canix, who is the owner of Canix Inclusive Design Services, an international leader in inclusive playground and play experiences. Ingrid, thanks so much for being with us. Uh, could you just tell us a little bit about your background as an occupational therapist and how you got into this unique field of designing inclusive sp- play spaces? Well, thank you, Dennis. I'm uh, really happy to be here. Yes, I got into this literally through a class assignment in OT school. So we had to, as part of our occupational therapy administration class, go out into the community and to nonprofits and show them what occupational therapy could look like. And my group ended up at a wonderful place called the Center for Creative Play in Pittsburgh, which was an indoor, inclusively designed play space. And in a month's time, we showed them what that could look like. So even though the executive director was very anti-OT, I actually started the meeting by saying, I know what occupational therapy is. Actually, I know what bad occupational therapy is. (laughs) I think we We all know what bad occupational therapy is. Yes, exactly. And I said, well, you know, I've volunteered here and I think our skills could really support what you're doing. So we created a program for them called Playing Cards that would help families be able to have their children play at the developmental level where they were and after a month of developing this for her she was like wow this like can I use this and we were like yes like that's the whole idea and there was a lot to it we had to build in research we had to build in marketing materials we actually had to write the Pennsylvania common grant to technically get ourselves hired and we did the assignment and then we went off on our field works and about uh, a year later, she came knocking on my door and said, listen, I want to hire you. And I'm working on a grant. And I remember driving over there going like, okay, really small nonprofit. How low could I go in salary? How low could I go? And you know what? She did her homework and she had written me into a five-year grant at kind of entry level OT uh, salary level. And it didn't take long for me to say, okay, this is the opportunity of a lifetime. So I jumped right on in and that's where it all started. So those those management courses sometimes pay off. Is that what you're saying? Yes, they do. <laughs> and, and I think the other thing I'd, I'd like to really say to students in particular, and even professors, is there are job opportunities that come out of those type of assignments. So, you know, put your best foot forward. And if it's something that you're interested in, I mean, that that grant particularly focused on playgrounds, but also had it tap in with some children's museums. And then that funder, which was the W.K. Kellogg Foundation, came back after that five years and offered us more funding, in particular in children's museums. So not only was it like a one-time hit, but I think the interesting thing with foundations is if they really like what you do, mm-hmm. they like to give you more money. So, uh, which is great. You know, which is great. Yes, exactly. That was the, that's a Tony, Tony Tiger Kellogg's throwback. If uh, yes, <laughs> I don't know if Tony Tiger's still on the on the TV anymore. But uh, well, yes. great. So, w- where did you go to OT school then in Pittsburgh? Were you at? So I went to Duquesne. Okay, I was actually in the weekend program. So in classes on Friday, Saturday, and then uh, also ended up doing 
like a TA for our neuroscience professor. Mm -hmm. So I ended up kind of at the university full time, even though I was really just in classes on the weekends. Well, that that's phenomenal. I actually, um, in the last 20 years or so, have not um, worked as a, uh, you know, kind of in direct occupational therapy care and have had sort of these odd aspects of, of my profession. And so I think more and more, it seems like occupational therapists and occupational therapy assistants are really looking to see what are some other things that might be in a related field um, that might, you know, we might be able to use our occupational therapy skills in. So that's, that's great. So, um, so you started um, in this uh, children's museum, and then kind of where, where have you gone from that, that children's museum? Yeah, so really the Center for Creative Play was, you know, this place, it was an indoor space. And as part of that W.K. Kellogg grant, there were also playgrounds that were part of that. So I kind of got introduced to the playground Mm -hmm. industry that way, but I was focusing on the indoor spaces, the children's museums, uh, the follow-up grant. I created a universal design assessment for children's museums, and this was like early 2000s, so Mm -hmm. autism was just blowing up, and you know, these museums were like, these kids are coming here and we don't know how to support them and ADA doesn't help us. And then, um, yeah, the, the playground piece just continued to, to take off as well. And I still do some, some children's museum work, but more on the playground side now and more work with parks and, and city planners and things like that. When it's it's just so great that they reached out to you, and uh, I guess you reached out to them initially, but you know mm-hmm. understood the the value of inclusivity. So could you talk a little bit about why inclusive play is so important? I think a big part of it is really I'll go back to actually a quote that one of the parents gave me very early on when I worked in this. She said, "You know, the beauty of an inclusively designed environment." is that it's an environment that does does not disable my child. It allows my child, regardless of what her diagnosis is or his diagnosis is, to truly engage and play with, with their peers. And I think, you know, when we look at society today, there's so many more children who are in the mainstream with, in some cases, very complex medical conditions. And the fact that they can still go out and as a family play in in spaces. And I think the value also that we hear from families is when a space is really designed well, it allows their child to make friends, which is really their highest priority. It's not getting to the highest feature of the playground or to every element of the playground. But the first thing we hear is, I really want them to be able to develop friendships and I want them to feel included. But the secondary message that we've been starting to hear really loud and clear is that families are saying it allows us as a family to to have time together because so much of the rest of our life is split up. We are split between taking one child to therapy and another child to other recreational activities or school or, you know, this child's in the hospital for a period of time. And and oftentimes we're divided as a family and these environments give us those places where we can be together and really enjoy each other. Yeah, absolutely. And it's definitely our, you know, from our, our disability studies friends, you know, would always define you know, disability is a social construct and, you know, the, mm-hmm. the better we can construct environments so that um, they're not disabling. I think it is um, obviously the, the better for the, those kids, for adults, for yep. everybody to, exactly. be able to, to exactly. fully participate in, in life, which is, 
you know, hopefully one of our, our main goals is occupational therapy practitioners and as human beings, I guess. Uh, as yes. Well. And so. that ability to see that everybody has the drive to play. Everybody wants to engage in some way. We just do it differently. Mm-hmm. And we need that opportunity to come have spaces where we can come together and do that. Yeah, absolutely. So you started, you sort of started in the children's uh, play museum or children's uh, museum uh, and the indoor spaces, but you started also to get into playground and designing inclusive playgrounds. Can you talk a little bit about that progression that you went through? Yes. So again, some of that started with able to play. It then took off when I started, I, for several years, I ran an inclusive play symposium. And again, you know, this is mid 2000s. So autism is really blowing up and, so I'm running this this symposium and I get a call from Landscape Structures, who's the manufacturer I partner with from time to time. And they're like, can we come to this? Like, we, we don't know how to support these children on our playgrounds. We want to learn more. And so I said, sure, come on down. And then next thing I knew, they were inviting me up to the factory and we they had put together a whole inclusive advisory team, which is a blend of there's several occupational therapists, there's parents. We now have kids with disabilities who are part of it, but we're all this big team that really kind of helps them understand the needs of everybody who's coming to the playground. And that, that, that occupation of play and how that's so important for every child's development. And again, just that drive to how do we create those opportunities in our spaces. And the neat thing with this particular company is their founder, Steve King, was actually on the board that created the ADA playground guidelines. Mm -hmm. Uh, So he was one of the few uh, landscape architects who was part of that committee who actually created those guidelines, which are really used to really, if we're looking at the minimum that a playground has to, to meet. Finally, earning CUs is as easy and stress-free as listening to your favorite podcasts. Just head over to occupationaltherapy.com and sign up to start earning the CEUs you need online. You'll get unlimited access to hundreds of courses, including live webinars, on-demand videos, and text courses, and the audio courses you love for just $99 per year. And if you sign up today, you'll get 13 months of unlimited CEU access for the price of 12. This is an exclusive offer for our listeners, so don't wait. Go to occupationaltherapy.com and use promo code PODCAST and get 13 months for just $99. Join thousands of your colleagues who are already earning their CEUs online with occupationaltherapy.com, an AOTA-approved provider of continuing education and an NBCOT professional development provider. And don't forget to use promo code PODCAST at checkout to get your free bonus month. Once again, that's occupationaltherapy.com, promo code PODCAST, P-O-D-C-A-S-T, to get started today. Um, they have to meet those those guidelines. So it sounds like a good person to know, I guess, yes. when, you're, when you're working in this space, right? right. Um, so how, how did you find um, indoor spaces and outdoor spaces? How are they different? Or how did you, how did they... What were the differences that came to came So to probably the like, biggest difference is there's really, in indoor spaces, you have like your basic ADA applies, and there's groups like the Smithsonian Institute that's put together some ADA kind of translation for, for indoor spaces. A lot of exhibit manufacturers now are looking at universal design, but you don't have the same level of legal 
requirements that you see on the playground side. So on the playground side, again, you have this document, the accessibility play areas. It's a summary of the, the accessible guidelines for play areas. That's like the core document for accessibility on in playground areas. Then you also have a whole bunch of other um, safety uh, guidelines on the playground that don't seem to translate into the indoor spaces. So there's fall zones and use zones. And so I've actually taken the course to get certified in that. And those are all driven, you know, unfortunately by litigation more than anything else. But there's also uh, another entity that then looks at developmentally what's appropriate at what age group. So if you go to a playground, you'll notice oftentimes they'll have a sign that'll say, oh, this is a two to five area. And then this area is a five to 12 area those again kind of come under a legislation structure that looks at developmentally, you know, what is a two to five year old physically capable of doing and what's a, a five to 12 year old. And now they've got standards for six month to 23 month olds. So, you know, so the height of those structures are different because of, again, kind of this, you know, these entities that are saying this is best practices for safety and developmentally and understanding how children play. And then you have that ADA piece that's also layered on. Um, and even though children's museums definitely understand child development, you don't actually have like rules that are saying, you know, like it can only be this high off the ground or this is the step height that you need to have or things like that that are very clear on the playground side. Gotcha. So, so I was thinking it was like snow and rain would be the other big differences. <laughs> but, you know, now that yeah, you're in well, warmer weather... Ingrid and not in the you, in the You'd Midwest. be surprised. Uh, <laughs> you know, there's uh, there are a lot of children's museums that have water, so it, it, they they definitely add that layer of of water play in there. Not that it's necessarily intentional rain, but accidental rain, maybe. <laughs> gotcha. That's that's always always a always a risk, I guess. Yes. Um, so you mentioned legal requirements. Um, so what are some of the legal requirements around um, accessible playgrounds? Really, the, the biggest document in the U.S., and this varies also uh, from country to country. So Canada has their own standards. I think Australia has their own standards. In the United States, it's really this accessibility play areas document, which is uh, really the guidelines that are used to make sure that we're meeting those ADA minimums. Uh, anything that's beyond that is, uh, you know, kind of pushing that inclusive universal design message. But um, there are some people, they just specialize in that ADA side. Mm -hmm. And I often partner with them mm -hmm. because that's their expertise. And then I dive into the, okay, how are we supporting kids with sensory needs or supporting kids who move differently, mm -hmm. but not necessarily with a mobility device. Uh, you know, there's so many more kids with diagnoses that ADA doesn't touch mm -hmm. that are coming to play. What, are, what would some of those diagnoses be, just off the top of your head? So if we look at autism, sensory processing disorder, uh, recently I put together a whole presentation for, for park designers, getting them to understand uh, just different diagnoses that have sensory components. So even things like dyslexia or ADHD, you know, these kids are still maybe struggling with some motor patterns, are struggling with how to keep up with other peers, how to socially engage with them. 
what do they do when they get overwhelmed on the playground? So, you know, those all have design implications of, so where are we creating those cozy, quiet spaces for that child who might need an opportunity to self-regulate and they need to kind of check into what we call a time-in space. So instead of a time-out space with a negative connotation, it's a an it's like checking into the inn and I'm going to go in there and pull myself together. Or even what are the different play experiences? So do I have a, a rocking type play element where as a therapist, maybe I can be on it with the child and I can use that movement to practice some co-regulation with the child. Mm -hmm. So they could use it individually, but I could also use it in as a pair with them or multiple kids could be using it too. So, you know, those are kind of the design layers that kind of go into designing and, but, you know, those are all diagnoses that maybe kids are receiving services for, you know, those diagnoses under the IDEA Act, but ADA does nothing to support design for them. And yet that's about 50% of our school populations are falling under kind of those diagnoses, right? So it's where it's uh, important to have an occupational therapist as part of the team to, to think exactly. big picture. So exactly. Inger, this might, this might surprise you, but I'm, a, I'm in my 50s now. And so when I was a kid, and I think about the playground at my grade school, um, we had those you know, kind of monkey bars, which were over asphalt, uh, a, a swing that was over asphalt, and then um, the uh, slide also over asphalt. Um, and so a lot of times, you know, people are sort of criticizing these, you know, um, playgrounds that are not quite as fun uh, as the, the playgrounds of our youth. And I just think that the playground of my youth anyway, I, I remember uh, falling uh, head first off the monkey bars. So that was one trip uh, to the nurse's office and home early. And I don't think we really thought about concussions back then, but I'm sure there was a, a little bit of a concussion there. But um, what do you think about people that are kind of critical of today's playgrounds and how they're not as fun as the, as the, the ones from my youth anyway? Yes. So there's all, you know, again, this all ties into that safety regulation mm -hmm. piece, right? So you know, merry-go-rounds now have governors on them. They can only go so fast and they have to stop after so many revolutions. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I mean, you think of the merry-go-rounds of our childhood where, you know, like the faster, the better. And sure. we'd be like, I literally remember hanging off and, you know, just about scraping the back of my head uh, uh, on the all's fault. <laughs> because again, um, so there, there is, uh, you know, definitely groups that say that there's no risk on playgrounds today. And yet, on the flip side, you have, you know, these groups that the moment a kid gets hurt, they're turning around and school, suing a school district or they're suing, you know, like I, I was, I think in Washington state where, you know, a kid accidentally got hit in the head with a, a swing and ended up with, you know, an internal bleed and ended up dying. And then they wanted to like remove every swing off the playground. You know, it was an accidental thing, you know, so there, there's, trying to find this balance. And so the manufacturers are caught, caught up in that because they have to meet all these safety standards, but they still want to provide kids with risk because it's in the process of risking that we understand what our limits are. And also, you know, the rules of gravity, you know, gravity is gravity. It's like not going anywhere unless you're lucky enough to end up in one of those, you know, SpaceX things and get to, to play without gravity for a few minutes. But the reality is children need to have that understanding of risk and where their limits are. And this is true even for kids with different disabilities to understand how far they can push things, what, 
you know, what is a non-negotiable like gravity and being able to master those motor patterns. And so when you look at, you know, some of the work out there, um, and again, even from some occupational therapists that, you know, are saying, you know, our kids today are weaker than they've ever been. They don't have the motor coordination. They don't understand their body in space. So I'm, you know, I'm thinking of some of uh, Angela's work uh, up there in New Hampshire and, you know, really getting kids moving in the environment. And, and so there's some folks who are like, we need to just get rid of all the manufactured stuff and just go all natural. It's a balance. And what I find with the manufactured pieces is there still is that ability to create risk. It's a matter of how far is that community willing to go and also understanding that, you know, some of these things are put in for the health of everyone involved too. So there's a balance there. And unfortunately, uh, you know, you go to other countries or you go, especially in Europe, we, they don't have all those restrictions because there isn't the litigation that you get here in the U.S. in those environments. It's kind of play at your risk. You know, your kid falls and breaks a leg or falls on their face and you end up in ER. Well, that's that's on you. And, uh, you know, the kid learns from the experience and not that doesn't often happen here. We immediately, I remember going to, to do some work with New York City Parks, which, you know, that, I mean, that's, I think they have 26,000 parks within New York City proper. Yeah, they have, they have like five different divisions that are based on the boroughs. And again, I, I, I was talking about the importance of vestibular movement. And one of the designers said, okay, this is really important because again, we have people who don't want anything that moves on the playground, like not just swings, anything. And I was like, well, kids will make things move. They need to move as part of their development. Again, it's how do we design it in such a way that, you know, the fall zones are there for a purpose. The research has been done to say that, okay, we need this kind of space around swings or we need this type of space around a spinner. We need this type of depth in the, the, the fall zone. If a kids are climbing up this high and, you know, we can still do have motion and still have exciting climbing and risk taking and still have the protections built in based on the standards of the, of the industry. Gotcha. Could you define what a fall zone is? Yeah. Yeah. So there's, there's two things on a playground. The use zone is the area around that element that is kind of defined as I need this much space to use it. Mm -hmm. So if you think of swings, swings have a huge use zone. So let's say it's, if I remember right, the rule of thumb is if it, let's say it's eight feet high, the, the actual, where the swings are attached, then you need 16 feet to the front of the swings, 16 feet to the back of the swings, and six feet on each side of the posts at the end. And nothing else can be in that area. That's why swings end up kind of on the outskirts of playgrounds. Gotcha. Some things can overlap, some can't. Fall zones are based on how high you're going up. And then the regulation will tell you how deep the the impact has to be. So if you're using wood fiber, which is ADA compliant, how thick does that fiber need to be? Does it need to be eight inches, 12 inches? If you're using the rubberized surfacing, the same thing. And that's based again on what they call drop heights and impact. And even things like swings themselves have impact 
attenuation. So if I would get hit with that swing, there's can only be so many pounds of force that would like knock me over. So like there's all these rules, like I'll bring all these cool ideas. Let's design this. And they'll go like, okay, you know, these are our restrictions from a safety standpoint. Mm -hmm. These are restrictions from a manufacturing standpoint. And it's like, okay, you know, like it takes, you know, it's got to be manufacturable or it's going to be too expensive to have it. And, you know, things like, you know, merry-go-rounds now have governors on them. They can only go so fast. And that's all safety restriction requirements. So there's all these layers of things that come into play. Well, there's also <laughs> some governor on any swing that doesn't let me swing all the way around in a loop. I've been trying that for yeah. over 50 years. For, and I've been for 50, fully, it hasn't worked fully yet, huh? unsuccessful. So I don't know if that's yes. physics or uh, a governor, but one of those two is. I, I think it's a physics thing of, of how how that bracket is created. Gotcha. Yeah. There's a, a clown um, named Bello, Bella the clown. It's my, mm. the world's most famous clown. So, but he does a, and he's an acrobat. So he has a thing where he can go all the way around. So go all the way around. Yeah. He must know somebody that's able to do that. Yes. Like physics <laughs> or something. So anyway. Um, so is there a difference between an accessible playground and an inclusive playground? And if so, what would that difference be? So, you know, these are terms that all kinds of different organizations define differently and there's boundless playgrounds and, you know, they kind of all kinds of pieces. The, the rule of thumb I use is for the most part, if I'm talking about an accessible playground, I'm talking about a playground that meets the ADA minimum. It's the minimum standards and it's really kind of prescriptive based on that, again, that accessible play areas document. So, it has, you know, so many counts of this type of piece at ground level, what pieces are accessible at this level, on the deck, on the ground. It's, it's really the minimum. Mm -hmm. Whereas an inclusive playground, to me, is really defined more by the needs of the community around it. And so oftentimes people will say, well, can you just give me a checklist? And I'll say for a truly inclusive playground, I can't because it's going to be different from playground to playground. And there's um, actually a, a park district in Anchorage, Alaska, of all places, who did a beautiful job of kind of defining what inclusive play looks like for them. Mm -hmm. So they have 84 parks within their district. And so in partnering with some grad students, they actually looked at the demographics of who lived around every park. So they kind of got what they call their, what I call their ability demographics. So mm -hmm. let's say this is a pocket park and it's near one of our schools. It has a lot of programs for children with autism. So when they designed, when they, they created their strategic, strategic plan to overhaul their parks, that particular part, they made sure it met ADA standards, but then they did a lot of extrasensory components in things that they knew that children with autism would respond to because they knew those kids were living in that neighborhood, mm -hmm. walking past it, using it on the weekends, maybe even using it as part of school. Another playground, which is more central in the city, that's by the VA hospital, did universal design as far as they could push it. Mm -hmm. So, because again, they were seeing a lot of folks using the playground for rehab. They had veterans coming out in wheelchairs who were, you know, learning how to move through that environment. So what they did is they defined that inclusion based on the needs of that community. Mm -hmm. 
that was immediately around it. And then they've created, you can actually go to the Anchorage Park Foundation website, and they actually have a map of where these playgrounds are and the type of sensory equipment and play equipment that that park meets. So that if you uh, are going up there on vacation or you just want to check out different playgrounds, you can go do it. And so as part of that strategic plan, they, you know, they first of all addressed the playgrounds that didn't even meet ADA because they knew they had to meet the minimum. Mm-hmm. And then if they had these other layers of inclusivity, so there was one that I worked on a couple years ago where the playground was in a, a central park area in a kind of a housing development, but a good mix of the housing development were actually seniors, mm-hmm. but there was also a boys and girls club that bordered on the playground, but they saw more teenagers than they saw younger kids. And so, you know, there were definitely play elements that would support kind of the two to five-year-olds, but there were many more pieces that we looked at that were more appropriate for teenagers. So things that allowed social gathering, things that uh, allowed for maybe more complex climbing so that those kids were getting the challenge that they needed. So to me, that's a good inclusive playground for that neighborhood. It also had a lot of amenities that supported grandparents Mm -hmm. who might come with grandchildren. So we also looked at there was that kind of cohort of grandparents who were watching grandkids during the day and kind of that end of the park that was away from the boys and girls club was that younger area. And it had a lot more kind of bench seating and supports for grandma and grandpa to be able to come be comfortable and watch the grandkids play. And they kind of played in the morning and then in the afternoon when the boys and girls club was busier, then they were using you know, the more robust pieces down at their end. So you know, the big difference is accessible for the most part meets that ADA piece and it's really the minimum that's required. Whereas inclusion is really what that community needs and it's it's a more diverse process or labor intensive process to make it happen because you're doing a lot more data gathering and asking questions and who's here and who's coming to play and things like that. That is um, really smart <laughs> and much much more complicated, I think, than I expected. Than you realize, yeah. yeah. And so the idea is that, you know, no two inclusive playgrounds look the same. And many will go and visit others to see what they have. And mm-hmm. then they kind of pick and choose. And then ultimately the goal is to be the best of the best. Mm-hmm. So they're always trying to one-up each other, which is kind of fun too. Well, so it seems like a, having an occupational therapy practitioner uh, involved in this makes a lot of sense because it is, you know, just such a a much more complicated process than maybe meets the eye. Um, so, are, do you get to um, design playgrounds? You get to kind of design equipment. Which kind of what is your role in all of this? Well, I get to kind of do it all. Um, partly with my partnership with Landscape Structures, I get to design equipment. So, there's probably maybe at this point a dozen pieces of equipment that I help them design. Everything from the we go round and the we saw things that really allow that child to stay in their wheel, wheelchair and be part of the the merry go round experience, let's say, or the we go swing, where I can again stay in my chair but still be swinging with a friend. And you know, a lot of these things may take two, three, four years to develop between kind of the logistics and the safety and the manufacturing and the engineering and all that type of stuff. I also get to. So is this like Air Jordans where you have like your, the Kinex, uh name on the, on the side no, or how does that No, work? I don't. <laughs> 
No, we we just it sounds like that we we seems to be the yes yeah the, we have what I call the the we the we go collection so the we the we saw is kind of the updated seesaw so again standard there requires that that now starts in neutral as you know so horizontally neutral so that you don't get the drop off piece like you used like we used to get when our friend would jump off the. <laughs> <laughs> the seesaw the head injuries yeah yes and uh, but it also has like a platform in the middle for kids who don't quite want as much movement and uh, their ability to sit and be part of that or in some cases stand we do get kids who like to stand in the middle and and be part of that and the nice thing with with these is that uh, especially with the the wego collection is they're big enough for adults ah. like uh, uh, there's a, a play. So you're saying that adults are on playgrounds. Oh yes. Yes. There's a, actually a friend of mine who's up in Buffalo who does a, kind of a series of inclusive playgrounds, a group called Mason's mission. Uh, one of their playgrounds was highlighted by a nursing home that does park visits there. And so it's all seniors wow. and they're playing on the, we go round and the Omni spinner and the, we saw and, you know, <laughs> the, we go swing and things like that because it has those additional supports. Mm -hmm. So there's kind of the, the equipment design part, then there's kind of the, the park and the playground layouts. So sometimes I might just work with, uh, an organization and maybe a sales team person to design the actual playground for a school or for a, uh, a park in an area. And then I, I go even bigger where I might have a landscape architect firm that hires me to actually oversee or look at the inclusivity of a whole park. Mm -hmm. So it's not just the playgrounds, but we're looking at pathways. We're looking at access to maybe field houses uh, trail systems, things like that, that are broader than just the playground piece. So I really kind of have that whole piece on the playground side. And then I still do some museum work. So mm -hmm. it may be exhibit space design. Uh, so I might work with an exhibit manufacturer, or I may actually work with a museum. Uh, like this week, I'll have a phone call with a museum that's looking at wanting to, to look at their museum overall, mm -hmm. where can they, they improve their access and uh, so I'll probably go in and do a universal design assessment for them. And then they can use that as kind of the launching pad of where do they go next with, with the museum. Nice. So what types of assessments do you use? Are they publicly available? Or are they ones that you've created or? So I, I do kind of have a, a, you know, even though I haven't said I use a playground checklist, there is kind of, we call it a playground matrix that's part of a book that I put together with a group out of Canada. So right now, Canadian Tire, which is a, a huge company up in Canada, they have a foundation called Jumpstart that's doing a $50 million inclusive playground initiative across Canada. Wow. So every province and territory will have a Jumpstart playground, and some of them have more than one. Mm -hmm. And... Um, the idea was also to look at the best practices around inclusive design around the whole world. So this, this document, which is a free download that anybody can download at, in French or English, uh -huh. uh, looks at all those best practices and pulls those together. And so in the back of that, they did ask if I would put kind of a matrix together uh, so that would loosely be kind of the evaluation tool that mm -hmm. I used in my own mind, when I look at playgrounds, there are several groups that are looking at maybe 
putting together something, but there's nothing formal that's like an ADA checklist mm -hmm. like you would have, but there's also nothing formal like that for museums besides the basic, you know, can I get from the parking lot to the entry and can I get to the bathrooms? So uh, for museums, I did create a universal design assessment um, that I've done now on about mm -hmm. 50 museums. And, you know, again, looks at things beyond just ADA. So they do get the ADA audit as part of it. But then I look at universal design principles and I look at things like color, the colors that are used. I look do sound, you know, what, you know, what's the decibels of sound in a children's mm -hmm. museum, uh, the seating. All, all, you know, Is that with or without the children? Um, actually, sometimes both, because sometimes the just the machinery that. Yeah, yeah, it can be quite loud, especially if they're doing uh, air walls and water tables. All those things have sounds that go with them. And then, yeah, and then you add the kids in there and it can get really loud really fast. And again, for for a lot of our kids, um, you know, that gets overwhelming. And I did a project with the Shedd Aquarium uh, several years back. We did a polar play zone. And one of the things that came up was actually the automatic uh, hand dryers in the bathrooms and around the, the different water stations where kids could touch the starfish and all this kind of stuff. And so their policy was that they were a paper-free organization. They didn't want any paper towels and stuff like that because of, of their stand on, on the environment. So they were using hand dryers, but then the hand dryers became the issue because of noise. And so they developed a way internally to insulate those to reduce the sound and still allow them to operate. So, you know, it, it opens up the door for creativity that way, for innovation and solutions and problem solving, which is kind of fun to, to see that, you know, they want to respect this this environmental piece that's important, but they also want to respect the visitors who are coming and we end up with something new and better as a result of that, right? Absolutely. When you mentioned creativity, and that's, I think, you know, with every occupational therapy practitioner, that's kind of at the heart of what we do. So can you talk about maybe some other occupational therapy skills that you feel like you're using on an ongoing basis? So definitely, probably the biggest one, both for indoor and active, outdoor is activity analysis. I'm looking at what's the activity that child's doing in that exhibit or on the playground and I'm analyzing it and in my head I've got kind of got like a collection of little kids of different ages. So I think, you know, when we look at developmentally even how the typical child develops and then the understanding of how different medical conditions might impact that, you know, those are all things that we kind of learn in school. And then, you know, how does that impact that child's ability to play? So, you know, oftentimes, let's say on a playground, I'll, I'll get, well, you know, I'm, I'm designing this for wheelchair access. And I'll say, no, you're designing this for a child who uses a wheelchair. And children may use a wheelchair for different reasons. They may use it just because they don't have the physical capacity to use their legs. Like maybe they have spina bifida or they have a spinal cord injury. Or they may be using that wheelchair because they fatigue very easily. So they have muscular dystrophy. And so those chairs look different. They operate differently. Um, probably one of the biggest discussions I've had recently is this whole idea of, you know, a child leaving their chair and transferring onto a structure and understanding that for some children, that chair is what provides them stability. It gives them that stability in their trunk because of their medical condition so that they can use their arms. You know, they may more, be more in a power chair. And so keeping them in their chair is actually really important 
because they can play better that way. So helping, you know, groups understand that I'm not, you know, I'm not designing for a wheelchair. I'm designing for a child who might have this diagnosis or that diagnosis. And they both use wheelchairs, but maybe different types of chairs and some can leave them and some can't. And, you know, we do want to have options for those who can leave, but we definitely want to have the supports there for those who need that chair to really, that's what gives them their freedom to play, right? And then even, you know, environmental analysis, being able to look at that space and look at the flow of play, look at, um, so let's say on a playground, I've got a really big playground. Where am I putting in those spaces that are self-regulation spaces? So that if a child begins to get overwhelmed really quickly, they don't have to go across the whole playground to get to that quiet space that might work for them. So how are we tucking those in into the design in such a way that that child can quickly plug into that, re-regulate, come back out and play some more. Um, and so, you know, and, and oftentimes we get those little gems from kids themselves. I, I had a, a, a little guy with autism, actually Asperger's. He told me he had Asperger's. He said, he said to me, you can tell this story. You just can't use my name. And honestly, I don't think he ever told me his name, but I was on the swing. Um, we were, uh, I had a fieldwork student with me and we were evaluating this playground and the two of us were just sitting on the swings kind of facing towards this wetlands area. And he was in the next bay with his friend and he's like, you're grownups, you're not allowed on the swing. And I was like, well, you're like 10, what are you doing on the swings? And he goes, oh, these are like the best swings ever. And I was like, okay, he's on like a belt swing. It's like the minimal swing. And I was like, so how is this the best swings ever? And he goes, because when I get overwhelmed on the playground, because I have Asperger's, I need to not look at really busy streets and I need to not be looking at that really busy playground that's behind me. I need to look at these nature things like this. And this is the only playground that I go to that has this. And this makes me feel better because then I can go back out there and play on that crazy thing with all those other kids. So like he had figured that out. And I was like, wow, there's like an insight to, to continue to carry around and share with designers because oftentimes, yeah, because playgrounds take a lot of room, they end up on the outside of the playground. And oftentimes we stick them between the parking lot and the structure. And what do we give the kid to look at? A really busy road and a, a parking lot and a really busy playground. And if that kid gets overwhelmed visually or even auditorily, you know, putting them on the backside where maybe I'm looking at the trees or I'm looking at a river or I'm looking at, you know, and we know from research that looking at natural things calms down our physiology. You know, he was just living that. And so, you know, looking at those environmental pieces and making intentional decisions of why are we doing what we're doing there? So those are definitely skills that, that I'd say from, you know, my OT classes I use all the time. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like you carry around a bunch of case studies with you. Yeah, I have a whole collection of little kiddos in my head. And yeah, and he's the latest Mr. I call him Mr. Asperger's because honestly, I don't know his name. <laughs> I'm sure he would own that lovingly. So, um... Oh, yes, yes. And he did. He, he was very proud of his, who he was at 10 years old. So um, one way to fund building up playgrounds is through foundations. Um, you kind of mentioned that in the... Um, the uh, Canadian Tire, the Jumpstart Initiative in Canada. Um, how else can we look at funding um, some of these these types of playgrounds? Yeah, definitely the Jumpstart is uh, one of the 
the unique kind of funder type things. Now, the one I did in Michigan, able to play, was similar. Kellogg did seven point five million wow. to bring inclusive play, which in you know two thousand one was a lot of money. It was mm-hmm. part of their seventy fifth anniversary. Um, here in North Carolina, the Trillium Foundation did an initiative probably five six years ago where they put an inclusive playground in each each uh, county. Mm-hmm. But those are rare. It's it's really kind of a mix of a variety of different things. So you've got foundation opportunities. A lot of groups will do fundraising events. Um, and so I'll share kind of like two of my favorite playgrounds that that did this really well. And I just visited this one the other day, the Friendship Park in Port Clinton. Don't know if you've been to that one yet. but So it's actually my, my uh, two nephews' favorite park in the entire world. Oh, awesome. And, uh, yeah, they love it. We have a place there and... Their parents have a, a place near there. And actually, Fawn, uh, our uh, director here at OccupationalTherapy.com, also has a place there, very close to, to Lake Erie. Yeah, well, my name is literally on that playground. Like, that's a playground that I designed at a kitchen table with some families. Mm-hmm. Uh, we kind of designed it to replicate the waterfront. So, like, there's a big roller slide on it, and that's, you know, meant to to be like the, the marble head uh, uh I don't know what they call that elevated Marblehead lighthouse or the, well, not the lighthouse, but like you actually go under like the tracks where they send the marble down oh, the to quarry the, at the, the quarry yeah. from the quarry to, from the, the, to the ships. Quarry, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that's what the roller slide supposed to be. The, the lighthouse that's on it is actually a copy of the lighthouse at Port Clinton. And I think it's bigger than the one in Port Clinton. <laughs> um, but the whole idea is that, you know, you're, you're, um, you know, kind of going up the, the, the planks. And so the fundraisers that they did, so they have a really neat feature on there where they did uh, walk the planks. So you could put your name on a, one of the planks. So if you look, my name's on there. You, next time you go, you have to go find my name. But for $500, you could put your name on the playground. And I noticed since the last time I was there, they are continuing to raise money this way because there are more planks with names on them uh-huh. where mine is now than there used to be. But when they opened the playground alone, just with that initiative, they raised over twenty thousand mm-hmm. dollars. So they're, you know, and since they've continued to do that, but they they had in kind donations. They actually partnered with the Army Corps of Engineers that so they did a community build, which is another way to kind of reduce costs. Mm-hmm. Uh, you still have the manufacturer there to manage the install and all that. But the Army Corps of Engineers dug, I think, the seventy eight holes that support all the posts that support all the equipment and they used it as a training exercise mm-hmm. for their heavier heavy equipment operators so you know we had a bunch of military guys there they had people who did different walking events to raise money they they literally from the time we sat at the kitchen table and drew the design it was 16 months they raised over 75 $750,000 to do that playground and a good amount of it was you know in-kind donation the army corps of engineers doing their piece um they did actually tap into some state funds if i remember right um another favorite playground of mine the walnut grove which is the playground where i met mr mr asperger's (laughs) that's a 1.7 million dollar playground we did that sometimes doing playgrounds in phases so we did the inner part first and then the moment the inner part went in oh my god everybody wanted like to add money to the mix to the outer parts 
But there again, they used some state money for wetland preservation. Mm -hmm. So part of that prepared the site for the playground. So, you know, there's a, there's, you know, expenses that are more than just the structure, right? You're, there's your surfacing, there's the installing of the equipment, there's the preparing the site, all those things are potential funders mm -hmm. or funding streams. Um, so I've worked on playgrounds where like local contractors have done all the concrete work and donated that. So they've done the sidewalks and the trim and all that stuff that holds the surfacing in. You know, so they're really, you know, it's kind of the sky's the limit mm -hmm. as far as creativity. I've had groups who have done galas where they've put sponsorship val values on each of the pieces. Mm -hmm. And I had one group that ended up with a whole bunch of car dealerships competing with each other <laughs> as to which one could contribute more. Mm -hmm. And then they just do a nice donor board at the entry. And, you know, really folks have that chance of recognition and the nice thing with the community build too is, you know, because people help build these pieces, they also take ongoing ownership mm -hmm. of it. So we had done a, uh, actually a playground up in Washington state, which was in a neighborhood that had a group of adult um, group homes around it. Mm -hmm. And so they invited all those folks to be part of the building process. And so now they have this, this veteran who, who, he uses a power chair and every morning he comes out and he wipes off the dew off of all the equipment, mm -hmm. which, you know, in Washington state is saying a lot, <laughs> you know, a lot of dew so, so there's many different ways um, to, to fundraise and it's nice to get a big pot, maybe from a foundation. Uh, and, and one of the things I do tell people to think about too, is not just think of the big foundations, but also look into family foundations mm -hmm. and community foundations because there may be special groups there that that fund just for inclusivity and it may be a smaller amount, mm -hmm. but they may only focus on that county. So you have less competition. And uh, yeah, so there's all kinds of different ways besides that in kind and. and yeah, grant, grant writing is interesting, but they're definitely, you know, a lot of these foundations, as you said, are really regional, you know, so they can yes. only, you know, uh, you, you know, have, um, grants in certain areas, or as you said, that are specific to certain, you know, disability inclusion or, you know, around right. a diagnosis or something like that. Sure, so lots, sure. of, lot, lots of options that are out there. Yes. Um, so are there specific nonprofit organizations that can help with this uh, funding process? There are several different groups. Um, Shane's Inspiration comes to mind. They've been around ooh, a good 15, 20 years. Mm -hmm. Um, oftentimes these are started by a parent of a child with a disability and they kind of make this their passion. And often it's a, a child, um, who they've lost mm -hmm. to that disability that they've passed away. So that's the story with Shane's, um, other groups, there's Harper's Playground, which is in the Northwest, uh, Unlimited Play, which is more like in the Kansas City area. There's Mason's Mission, which is in the Buffalo area. So oftentimes, you know, these folks will help you with the design process, and they will also help you with fundraising ideas. Um, Shane's Inspiration even goes a step further. They actually do programmatic elements around that, and they have an OT on their staff who's part of that. So they, they believe that just because you build it doesn't necessarily mean it brings the kids together and so they programmatically work on that piece of also helping to bring the kids together um, they may also pull in other entities uh, like uh, the arts or you know and the, the, this is a, again another way to look at funding 
um, is I've had several playgrounds recently where we've worked with nonprofit art groups, especially around the sensory components. So if we're doing a sensory wall to bring in a group of artisans to be part of that process, and, and then they bring in funding that goes with that. So I have one project right now that's in that's being built in Iowa where the art council brought like $75,000 to the table. So that frees up that 75,000 in the existing budget for other equipment or other things that you might need. So, um, you know, so there are these groups like Shane's and, and Mason's mission and, and some of these groups, uh, you know, uh, another one is, um, oh, Jake's place out of New Jersey. Jake's mm-hmm. place actually did a state law where they, they tied the law to a funding stream for uh, land access money. So if a county wants to access that state money to develop an un- undeveloped area and they don't have an inclusive playground in that county that meets the Jake's requirements, they can access that if they make it a, a Jake's, Jake's Place uh, project. So a little more kind of legislative on that side, but it's, uh, you know, the goal is that every county in New Jersey would end up with an inclusive playground that it meets at least that standard and exceeds ADA. Which I think is a goal that every occupational therapy practitioner listening uh, certainly is in agreement. And anyone else that's not an occupational therapy practitioner is going to agree with that. Um, so I think every OT that's ever met you has wanted to be you. Uh, so could you talk about, you know, because you design play, you know, as your job. Uh, so uh, do you, are there specific resources for uh, occupational therapy practitioners that might be interested in taking uh, some leadership and either maybe starting a, a, a playground in their community or in their school or uh, in their backyard, I guess, any, anything like that? Um, what resources did they use? So definitely, yeah, so yeah, definitely this new document, uh, this inclusive playground playbook that's uh, on the Canadian Tire website and uh, is, is a huge resource. But also... Um, like I've worked with capstone students who, you know, are practicing OTs in a school and they've gotten hold of me and just use me as a, as a content mentor. I'm actually finalizing my website and my website is designed just filled with resources. So resources on play, resources on universal design, resources on designing for inclusive play, indoor, outdoor, school-based there's no like formal courses that you can really take uh, in the U.S. Uh, uh, if you go up to Canada, the Rick Hansen Foundation has created a, so there's two groups that are trying to create universal design standards that would be similar to, let's say, LEED certification. So you could be certified in universal design. So the Rick Hansen Foundation, I'd say, is kind of the leader in that right now. And I've taken their course, was a year-long um, university-based course. I have not sat for the certification because they haven't figured out how that course meshes with ADA um, but I've used it as my my own resource, and it really goes into the universal design. Uh, the Global Universal Design Commission is also working on a similar type tool, but I don't think they're as fast. Um, the Canadian one, like there are buildings that are now certified and scored across the country on this. But this whole idea of you know looking at um, also continuing education 
events that playground manufacturers give. So, you know, I have a whole series of trainings that I've created for park folks where I say, you know, like you need to go find your community-based OT. And then on the flip side, you know, we invite OTs to those. And, um, you know, I'd say like, you know, even this podcast, getting people thinking about this and kind of one of the, the key pieces or the piece that I really like with the inclusive playbook is it really uses this model of, of not just what's happening on the play, playground, but how do I get to the playground? Kind of this, how can I get there? How can I play there? How can I stay there? So the getting there is everything from looking at your website information before families even come to public transportation access, looking at parking, all those type of things. The play there is really the the meat and potato of the actual playground structure. And then the can I stay there is the amenities. That's getting into, you know, where's the shade? How am I doing seating? How am I doing restrooms? Do I have a universal changing bench in the restroom? What are all those features that allow families to stay there long term? And um, I and I think, you know, the big piece is pay attention to when your local community mentions that, you know, we're getting ready to overhaul the playground and, you know, we would love to have community input. And then you as a as an occupational therapist have that ability to go in and say, listen, you know, this is who I am. These are the families that are in this neighborhood. So kind of doing going back to that Anchorage model of, you know, we as the OTs know who who lives in this region. So who could benefit by having what? And then, you know, when the proposals come in, because typically there's going to be a bidding process and you'll have multiple designs, being able to look at those elements and say, okay, you know, we don't have enough movement. We don't have enough vestibular play for the kids who are coming, or we need more proprioceptive play and climbing, and we need it to be go from very simple to very complex. And being able to do kind of that activity analysis and equipment analysis and say, yeah, this has the right balance, um, you know, and really giving that chance to be that voice for those kiddos and whether you're doing it, you know, once for a local park or, you know, I have, I have some students that I've, uh, doctoral students that I've mentored who now were, you know, one was hired by the park district that she did the assessment for just kind of looking at what they had. Others are, are looking at, um, you know, doing something with their school district not just the school, but the overall school district and maybe helping that school district come up with some standards of what inclusivity would look like in our school district, things like that. So, um, but unfortunately, I don't think there's like a set amount of courses you can take. <laughs> well, so certainly um, with, with um, occupationaltherapy.com, if you're a member, um, you'll have access to some resources. And then Ingrid, what is the what is your website that people could go to as well? Uh, the website is inclusive play by design. Ah, dot com dot, dot net, com dot, yep. dot com. There you go. Great. Yep. And so, what do you see just as the future of um, inclusive environments? Like, what's what's next? Do you think for the industry? You know, it's I'm always amazed by what each each group pushes the envelope. They just want to take it to the next level, and they want to see that inclusivity on not just on the playground, but on the largest scale possible. So there's uh, there's a wonderful park in uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma called the Gathering Space. It's a huge park, uh, opened several years ago. Uh, the folks who worked on that one are now working on a huge park in Texas. And 
you know, there were some things that worked really great in the gathering place. It's ranked in the top, you know, 10 playgrounds in the world by National Geographic. It's won all kinds of awards, but we continue to want to push the envelope of what inclusivity looks like. So this next one is going to go beyond that. And so it, it really is that desire to have as many diverse populations at the table and looking at how do we create that opportunity for them to engage to the best of their abilities. Awesome. Well, Ingrid, thank you so much for being with us. I'm uh, really excited to have you on the on the program. And uh, again, if you have interest, um, you can uh, get to Ingrid's website and uh, learn more about it. And thanks everyone for listening today and have a great day.